All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you today, and let me say thank you to those of you who did uh, help us with Serve Day. What a great uh, day it was to be his church on mission that day and uh, impact our community. Uh, we've already seen uh, some families who we interacted with out in the community who've come to visit on Sundays and Wednesdays, and so uh, we're so grateful for that. And then, of course, we had the opportunity to uh, strengthen our partnership with some of our uh, local missions partners. So thank you so much for being a part of that. Thank you for for how you serve uh, in general. Last week, we talked about our need as our children's ministry continues to grow, and I'm aware of at least 15 people who expressed uh, a desire to be a part of serving in our children's ministry uh, within the next day, and I would encourage you to continue to pray about uh, if you can be a part of that, as we certainly uh, want to see God bring more and more families uh, into uh, this church family. A great opportunity that we have uh, to serve together is through our Bayshore Kids Clubs, uh, which hopefully you talked about during the welcome, but about half of you are in here, so I'll say it again. Um, we just start at 9.30, but that's okay. Um, we uh, we at, at Bayshore Kids Clubs basically take vacation Bible school, if you're familiar with that, to the community in hopes to have more families who do not uh, regularly go to church uh, be a part of those Bayshore Kids Clubs, hear the gospel, ultimately uh, get brought into the life of the church. And so uh, this will be our third year doing this. We've seen that number uh, grow every year. And so uh, if you can, uh, we'd love for you to serve on one of our Bayshore Kids Clubs teams. Uh, you can go ahead and sign up for those now. Hey, let me also say if you're visiting with us today uh, or if you're watching online for the first time, that we are so grateful that you're with us. And we would love one thing from you, and that is to connect with you. You can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning or you can text the word CONNECT to the number that is on the screen and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you this week. Well, if you would, open to the book of Ephesians as we finish chapter one today. We are talking about finding your purpose. We have talked about who we are in Christ and our inheritance in Christ. And today we are talking about our calling. We will look at how we receive this calling. Then we will explore three things we need to know about our calling. And lastly, we will reflect on how we are living in light of that calling. So let's first read our text, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. The verses are on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you pray with me. God, I pray that today the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that we would indeed know what is the hope to which you have called us and what are the riches of your glorious 
inheritance. And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, centered around Christ and who he is and what he has done. God, may Christ be exalted, not only in our time this morning, but with the response we give to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And Paul says similar exhortations to Philemon and to the Colossians. There is a Greek Hellenistic expression for a possessive pronoun denoting a close relationship in this verse. And he was indeed close to the Ephesians, having spent two to three years in Ephesus. However, by the time Paul writes this, he has not been to Ephesus in five to six years. He has, however, heard of the Lord and how he is at work through the Ephesians. He has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Saints means any believer. To be a saint, according to the Bible, you have to be found in Christ. This is what other believers should hear about us. Our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love toward all the saints. In light of how much we've grown here at Bayshore, I think it is important to note that the mission of the church isn't just growing and bringing new people in. The mission of the church is gospel centrality. It's the exaltation of Christ. It's worship of God. And Jesus is recorded as saying in John 13, verse 35, that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The way the church grows, according to the scripture, is from people who have a love for God, that love for God overflowing into our love for each other as the church, and that love overflowing and spilling out into the community to where we bring people in and we want to see them believe in Jesus and then belong to God's family where we love one another and ultimately it be an environment where they can become who God has created them to be. What is happening in Ephesus is that their love is strengthening other churches in the region. That is a vision we have for our church family, that as God blesses us with growth, not just numerical growth, but spiritual maturity, that what God is doing here would result in the planting of new churches, the strengthening of struggling churches, and the equipping of churches that lack the resources we have, both in this area and across the nations. So Paul is very thankful for the Ephesian church and how they are loving one another. I feel the same for you. And I think Paul would feel the same for you. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and because of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, verse 16. To say I do not cease means that you are in a continual spirit of prayer. Now, if someone tells you they'll be praying for you, it either means they're not actually gonna be praying for you, that's just the church thing to say, or, some of you didn't laugh because you've said that too many times, or it means you are. You're just going to be thinking about them and praying about them. And what the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write here is incredibly relevant for us today. Paul says, he is praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
Now, there are two errors that occur in the church. There is knowledge without transformation, the error of having knowledge without transformation, and we need to understand that knowledge is not just book knowledge, but it is truth in practice. The Bible isn't just a textbook, it's a treasure map, and we ought to go and find the treasures of living out what Christ has called us to live. The other error is passion without knowledge. In Romans 10, Paul speaks of a, a group of believers who had a zeal for God without, but not according to knowledge. We see many churches like this where there's this great passion, but there's not really a commitment to understanding who God is to the scripture. And the goal and the prayer here is intimacy that comes from knowing God. You see, our deepest need is to know God, not just know about him. Our deepest need is to know God, not just know about him. To have this intimate relationship with God where we really know him. And you can know about someone and not know them. For example, I know a good bit about Tom Brady. I'm not a huge Tom Brady fan, but I know a lot about Tom Brady. I know that he grew up in California. He played football at the University of Michigan, that he was drafted late in the draft. I know that he had a girlfriend named Bridget, and they ended up having a son named Jack. He was married to a woman named Giselle. They had a daughter named Vivian and another son. I can't remember his name right now. I know that his dad's name is Tom Brady. I know a lot of things about Tom Brady. But I don't know Tom Brady, and Tom Brady certainly doesn't know me. And I think a lot of people who talk about faith, that's how their relationship with God is. So how do we know God? Well, hold your place here in Ephesians. We're gonna come back and flip a couple books back, a couple letters back to 1 Corinthians chapter two. 1 Corinthians chapter two. This is something that the Bible actually talks about a lot. Paul opens 1 Corinthians making a distinction between the wisdom of God and man. And then he writes on the work of ministry, the church, and this concept. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 13. Paul says, yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, or we do impart wisdom, sorry, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying the wisdom that comes from God is not the natural wisdom. The Bible shows us this idea, and theologians would call it, revelation. That is God revealing things to us. 
And there's such a thing as general revelation, which means things that are available to anyone. That is uh, creation. Creation reveals something about God. It really reveals enough to us to know that if we don't seek the God that creation reveals to us, then we stand condemned. God also speaks through history and the way that uh, events happen and kind of the arc of history and what's taking place. That's a general revelation. And then God also writes, you know, if you want to call it a conscience or a common law on the heart of man and speaks to us in that way. And then God also speaks specifically. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God declared by the prophets and the apostles, which has been written down and we preserve for us today. God also speaks specifically in acts throughout history. And then God, of course, reveals to him, us, himself to us most clearly in the person of Christ. And we have a diagram that, that helps us understand what God is doing when he reveals himself to us. You see, there is a limit to our ability to reason. Man's ability to reason. The natural man doesn't want the things of God or discern the things of God. What Paul is saying is then the Spirit of God brings those things to us. He reveals these things about God to us. And so we need to understand that there is a limit to our just natural reasoning and our natural understanding. And this revelation of God to us needs to become personal for us. It needs to be met with belief. It needs to be met with trust. And this is what Paul is praying for. If you look at verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eye is metaphorically the avenue through which light flows to the heart. Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 6. In classic literature, the heart is the center of being. So Paul, using language familiar to his audience and other audiences, says he is praying that the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts would be opened. To understand this, we really need to understand the framework of the Bible and its depiction of our need for sight. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, verse 17 and 18, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The psalmist says, I need you to open my eyes so that I might see how good you are and how good your ways are. And in the New Testament, there's this story of a blind man who's given sight, and he's given sight literally, but we also understand that metaphorically, that's a part of what God is doing in our life when we come to faith in him. We sing the hymn, I once was blind, but now I, good job, one person over there, good job. And so, this needs to happen in our life. And this isn't just like cleaning the windshield scene. It's our windshield is shattered and we can't see out of it. And we might be able to do this and peek through the cracks and have a little chance, but we stand no chance at life if that windshield isn't replaced. This eye opening needs to happen in our life. Charles Spurgeon writes in his An All Around Ministry, it is easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person, the gospel. So there's this barrier that is in our life where we must look to God for revelation or we can't understand the things of God. You need the eyes of your heart open, as they sang in the popular 90s Christian song, open the eyes 
of my heart, Lord. We have another diagram, and, and I think you need to see this to understand what happens in belief. You see, sin comes from within the heart. Jesus taught us that. It is not what is outside that defiles a man, but what comes from within. We are sinful because of what is in our heart, and then that is expressed. Revelation from God comes from external. It comes from the outside in. We are confused about this in our society, and that has infiltrated our churches. The famous psychologist Carl Rogers expressed the predominant thinking that has shaped our culture's view of man throughout the last century. He said that we are basically good, and our main problem is that we have lost touch with our inner goodness. And oppressive or distorting societal structures have obscured our goodness. Now, I'm not denying that certain societies and certain structures don't contribute to sin and evil and all that. I'm not denying that. But if you think what is common to think today, that your propensity to sin is because of the environment in which you are in, you are greatly deceived. Your sin is in your heart. It is who you are. And God has to come in and take residence and change you for that to change. We, do not sin, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is our identity. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some goodness to us and there isn't some uniqueness to us. Taylor Swift was right. I'm the only one of me and you are the only one of you. But the highest truth is God's revelation, not our inner feelings. The highest truth, the filter through which we must live our life is what does the Spirit of God reveal to us? And the Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God and inspires the people of God based on the Word of God because the Spirit of God gave us the Word of God. And so what God wants is he wants us to see him and he wants us to walk with him and know him. Okay, so why? I mean, maybe this doesn't make that much of a difference in your life, so why should you care? Or what is the difference if you live like this? I'm glad you asked me. Three things God wants us to know in our hearts. Three things God wants us to know in our hearts, and my hope is that these would be in your heart. God, help us, help us to see you. He says in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The first thing is the hope of our calling. Now, how can you know the hope? Isn't hope all about uncertainty? Hope I don't trip when I get up and leave, right? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the stock market fixes itself. I hope the sermon doesn't go too long. No, you'll go wrong if you think of hope in this way. The New Testament, when it uses the word hope like this, knows nothing of uncertainty. The hope to which Paul is referring is the assurance of a reality that has yet to be fully experienced. Biblical hope is not something you are unsure about. It is something you are very sure about that just hasn't happened yet. Biblical hope is not something you are unsure about. It is something you are very sure about that just hasn't happened yet. It's something that you look forward to with great anticipation. And that literally reshapes your entire outlook on life. 
In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His will is that we would have this glorious inheritance. His working of things is for us to have this glorious inheritance. And his guarantee is the Holy Spirit, which is the seal that shows us this is our future. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Howard Hayner says, Paul prayed that we would come to know God more intimately in order that we might know the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God wants us to see in our hearts the hope of our calling. The second thing God wants us to see in our hearts is the strength of our calling. Verse 19 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now, Paul is being very expressive here. It's not just power. It's the greatness of his power. It's not just the greatness of his power. It's the exceeding greatness of his power. It's the immeasurable capacity of his power. Paul is not one prone to exaggeration. He, he normally doesn't speak in a lot of flowing poetic language. Usually Paul is like, hey, this is what God's like, and I'm an apostle, so shut up and do what God says. That's his style. But here, Paul does something pretty unusual. It's like he loses his words. That the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge and ability to describe it. It's a power that is immeasurable. And I know that some of you don't feel that power. It sounds idealistic to you. Perhaps it sounds like religious hype or it sounds theoretical and it doesn't match what you are experiencing. And so I don't blame you that you feel this way. I, if I'm honest at times, I've felt this way myself. I think some of the Ephesians probably felt that way. And Paul's praying for them to know that power towards us. I want you to really pay attention to what Paul says here because I, I think this is where people head in the wrong direction in understanding and feeling the power of God. Paul says, in referring to our knowledge of God's greatness, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Here Paul says, if you want to see the power of God, if you want to feel the power of God, look to the resurrection of Christ. Look to the resurrection of Christ. And today, a lot of Christians are talking about wanting to experience the power of God. And we begin to manufacture what feels like the power of God. And I would call it hype. But at the heart of every Christian is the resurrection of Jesus. That's where the power of God is found. Some of us have been clearly saved out of things 
by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. We were trapped in our sin. We were struggling. And the resurrection power of Jesus has delivered us out of it. And some of us, by God's grace, grew up in homes where we were taught not to do those things. In environments where we didn't end up in those things. But we need to understand that God has saved us from those things. We're not better than those who have fallen into those things. But it's the same power of Jesus Christ that has preserved us from experiencing those earthly challenges. Thomas Goodwin says that his resurrection has the power of all resurrections contained in it. This is where we ought to look for power. If we are struggling with a sin this morning, where we ought to look is to the resurrected Jesus Christ and the power for him to conquer the grave. If we are in a relationship where we feel like there is no hope, where it is over, we ought to look to Jesus' power to bring death to life. If we are in a place where we don't believe that we can be useful or we have abilities or our life will have purpose, we look to the promise contained within the resurrection of Christ. And if we are a church and we want to experience the power of God, we don't need to be obsessed with the season that we're in or the leader or leaders that we have or the programs that we have. The power of the church to see the move of God today is the same power that the church has drawn upon for 2,000 years. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't need to see the spirit manifest in some man-made way, but the spirit has raised Christ from the dead and all hope is found there. That's our glory. That's where we're centered. That's what we exalt. And let me just say this, because I know some people will be watching online who are part of churches that are struggling, and they think their church is dead. And I just want to say to you that if there are two or more gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, your church is not dead. It is alive. And if we can help you at Bayshore in any way, we want to help you. Listen, and it's not. Christ isn't just the resurrected Christ. He's the Christ on the throne. He's the Christ who's returning. He's the Christ who's victorious in this age and in the age to come. His victory is real here and now. And yet, in some sense, it's soon to come or it's yet to be realized. And we must have this great hope that fills us because we know who rules and who reigns and who's coming back. And when we doubt his rule and his reign and his return, we look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the strength of our calling. The third thing that, God wants us to see in our hearts or wants us to know in our hearts is the means of our calling. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I think this is where some struggle to see the power of God in their life. They believe in the hope of the riches of Christ. They believe in the strength of the resurrection of Christ, but they are not committed to what Christ is committed to, to bring about his glory, and that's the church. Look at the phrases here. Everything is under his feet. He's the head over all things to the church, which is his body, his fullness, which most naturally means the church, the body of Christ, is the fullness by which Christ fills all things. God puts the glory of Christ on display through his relationship with his church. God puts the glory of Christ on display through his relationship with his church. Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his body. How he has made her faithful, 
how he has blessed her, how he has chosen her, how he has redeemed her, how he enlightens her, and how he has given her an inheritance. If you've never been in contact or in close proximity to someone's body, you don't really know them. And a reason a lot of people don't really experience the power of God towards us is because they're not a part of his body. This is the means of our calling, the church. This is your calling. Hope in God's riches, assurance in Christ's payment, and realization in the church's response. So let me ask you three questions as we reflect on this today. The first would be this. Do you see the glory of Christ as your strength? Do you see the glory of Christ as your strength? When you read the Bible or you listen to a Bible-saturated sermon, you are hearing the wisdom and the revelation of God. What happens? Do you see it? Does it have an effect on you? Does it move you? Does it make you hungry for more of God? Do the wisdom and revelation of God appear beautiful to you? Can you say with the psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste and sweeter than honey to my mouth? As you long for the life that you want, is this what moves you? Is this what you long for? Do you desire to have a career for the glory of God or for the glory of yourself? Do you desire to have a marriage that serves your interest or serves the purpose of Christ? Do you desire to have children that are a trophy on your wall or who are great rewards for the glory of Christ? Do you want to be a part of a church that makes you feel like you have what you need or the church that exalts Jesus Christ? Do you want your legacy to bring praises to your name or to echo in eternity? Are you living and seeking the glory of Christ? Do you see the glory of Christ as your strength? Secondly, do you pray? I should just stop there and talk about that for a minute, but not today. Do you pray for the glory of Christ or for earthly glories? So what I've experienced is most people professing faith in Christ individually and in groups, life groups, as you head to your life groups in just a moment or whatever groups, our prayers are about feeling better and looking better and life being better and not for the glory of Christ. Paul's prayer is for the fullness of Jesus to be known, for the glory of Jesus to be on display. And I think many of us are praying more for the glory and restoration of physical bodies than we are the glory and the restoration of Christ's body. Do you pray for the glory of Christ or for earthly glories? Number three, are you committed to the church for the glory of God? Paul begins this sentence with how the faith of the church in Ephesus and the love of the saints in the church at Ephesus is a reason for his joy. And he closes by saying, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Are you committed 
to the work of the church to bring Christ's glory? Are you thankful to be a part of that work? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that he and the other leaders don't lord it over their faith, but work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. Is that the aim of your life? Is the joy of those who would stand firm in the faith? He says in Philippians 1.25, when he's convinced of why he will stay here on this earth instead of going to be in heaven in that moment, he says, I know I will remain and continue you with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. You see, we have the incredible privilege to be a part of what God is doing and bringing himself glory on this earth. And he says that it's through the church. Through the church, people come to hear the gospel. People come to see who Jesus is and their purpose and they begin to learn the ways of Jesus and see the glory of his inheritance. Through the church, families get it. They get what it means to be married. They get what it means to be a father. They get what it means to be a mother. They get what it means to be a son and a daughter. Through the church, brokenness is restored. The people of God are equipped to go out into the mess and bring that into the church and to show them God's glory on earth. And simply, because of the love that we have for God and the desire of people to exalt him, the gospel is taken to the nations because there is not praise of God where there ought to be praise of God. Are you committed to the church for the glory of God? And the reason that many are not committed to the church for the glory of God and praying for the glory of God instead of earthly glories is because they don't see the glory of Christ as their strength. And they don't have confidence in the Lord. Perhaps this is you this morning. And there are uncertainties in your life. Financial uncertainties, whether short-term or long-term. Uncertainties about relationships in your life. Uncertainties about whether or not you'll get to experience the things you hope to experience. Uncertainties about physical stuff. And I can say with all confidence that I don't know at all how that is going to go for you. But what I do know is that the certainty of Christ's glory outweighs our uncertainties. The certainty of Christ's glory outweighs our uncertainties. Whenever I was first started getting, in ministry, getting involved in ministry leadership, I had a lot of anxiety about whether or not I was gonna do a good job or could do a good job, insecurities. I, I wanted to please people. I cared about what people thought about me and it could be paralyzing at times. And I remember people speaking into me and saying, hey, that's gotta be dealt with or you're not gonna be effective for the gospel. And I can tell you this, that about 20 years later, I still feel most of all that stuff. But here is what continues to grow, the certainty of the glory of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ 
and the grace of Christ. There are many uncertainties, but in Christ and because of his glory, we can face them with certainty. Even if you think about it, death, we don't know a lot about what's next. But as the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, my knowledge of that life, eternal life, is small. The eye of faith is dim. It is enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. Whether you have no purpose or you're struggling to maintain purpose or the circumstances of your life are causing you to lose purpose or you are just seeing your tendency to drift away from that purpose, my call to you today is to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Pray with me. God, may you be exalted in this moment. And may the exaltation of you and your glory cause all of our earthly concerns to shrink in light of your goodness and immeasurable power toward us, clearly proven in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.